So we have the great good fortune to, to hear a story, a true story, uh, that lines up so perfectly with the themes of the High Holy Days, particularly of Yom Kippur, our Day of Atonement, the day that we um, ask for forgiveness and try to believe we're worthy of forgiveness and finding the strength and the courage to forgive others. It is actually our practice to go ask people for forgiveness. The rabbis say you have to ask three times. So you you have to be willing to be rejected twice and go back again. That's how important asking and granting forgiveness is in our tradition. Gary Wright and David Kaczynski were unwittingly placed on opposing sides of the longest-running, most expensive criminal investigation in American history. Gary is a survivor of an explosive package sent by Ted Kaczynski, who is also known as the Unabomber. Kaczynski's brother, David, reached out to the victims of Ted's crimes, leading to an unlikely friendship between Gary and David. We are very excited to give a warm welcome to Gary and David to tell their story this Yom Kippur afternoon. Uh, Well, thanks, first of all, to um, Adam for reaching out, Hannah for setting up all of our arrangements, and to Rabbi Amy for welcoming us here on your holy day. Um, I hope your fast has been an easy one. Um, And the story we tell today, it really covers greater than 45 years. So in 30 minutes, it's going to be kind of difficult to squish everything in. And bring it all to fruition, but we'll do our best. So go as fast as we can and make it make it happen in the time allowed, allotted. But um, so starting the story, I mean, Amy kind of hit on it that it was Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Some people know, some people don't. Younger people don't anymore. Who it was, but it was a 17-year case where Ted, David's brother, would develop bombs, and place them, mail them throughout the country. And I was a person who happened to pick one up. So 1987, uh, I was a 25-year-old. I had started a computer hardware software company and came to work, as I normally did every day, but it was an early morning, maybe 6.30, I went to work, arrived at my office around 10 o'clock, drove into the parking lot, and when I drove in, I saw this piece of wood, looked like construction lumber almost, with a few nails sticking out of it, between the car that was my receptionist and accountant. She was basically the person who did the drawing that everybody sees now, the famous drawing, and my car. So I got out, picked it up. Immediately something went wrong. I mean, huge amount of pressure, um, in a second, I was kicked back about 22 feet, and everything went into slow motion. Um, initially, I thought I'd been shot. I wasn't exactly sure what was happening, but um, everything was muffled, kind of like being under the water in a swimming pool. And I noticed everything was very slow motion. Uh, the, way, the way I compare it is like the Matrix. I could watch the telephone and electrical wires going into my office, and they were moving up and down very slowly. Um, I looked down, and I could see that there was blood starting to come out. Uh, My pants were gone from about the knees down. And 
didn't really put together what was happening, but at that exact moment, there was a, a huge voice that came into my head and just said, you'll be all right. Now, what is that? I don't know. Voice of God echoing in my head. I don't know. But it wasn't my voice, and it was huge and booming. And I calmed down a little bit, and they took me to my office, laid me down, called the paramedics, the police, everything, and ultimately went to the hospital. So fast forward a little bit, injuries, they removed about 200 pieces of shrapnel. Uh, It was about a dozen surgeries to get through um, to get me where I am today. I I joke and tell people I'm a 100-word-a-minute, nine-fingered typist, so I think everything's good. My hands are in a perfect position for a jump shot. So all is well. Um, Things are good. wasn't always that easy. Um, Some of the bigger things that had to deal with were the business itself, I mean, it, it got shut down. The FBI lived there for a long time. Um, so it was difficult to live up to contracts that I had. Uh, employees, my family, everybody impacted. In those days, they didn't have um, folks to assign for PTSD. So a lot of that knowledge I just had to learn on myself on what I was going to do with it. Um, no physical therapy at all. So it was learn new ways to do things, um, how to make your hands work and things like that. Um, the physical, while it's tough, the mental was probably tougher. And I think that's probably the case for most people. Um, financially, it was very impacting in that insurance doesn't pay for medical if it's a terrorist event, or at least at that time they did not. So here I am, young guy, just going, Phew. What do I do with this? Um, Not able to necessarily get up and make a living quickly, did my best, and I think I went back to work about a week later. I I wasn't effective. They put up with me more than anything. Um, And when when I first found out about that it was the Unabomber, they just asked me, do you know who the Unabomber is? And I, I mean, as far as not the person, but have you heard of the Unabomber? I'm like, no. And I'd always told myself that if I read three things every day, I would be an informed person. And I kept thinking, how would I not have heard of this? This has been going on a really long time. 1978 was the first event. Mine was 1987. And um, most wanted person in, in the United States. And I'd never heard of it. So um, wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do with that. Um, later, I would learn out, learn that I was considered Experiment 121. So You know, it was very scientific, very deliberate, and I'll leave it with that and turn it over to David for a moment, but it's, it's, I think, important to think, it doesn't matter the age, but especially as a young person, I mean, what are you going to do when something that big changes, like, everything forever? David? I want to echo Gary in saying how, how deeply touched we are to be invited here to speak and present on this very holy day. Um, I don't do much public speaking anymore, only if I think it's really meaningful. And to be with Gary is always meaningful, but to be here is a real honor. Thank you. Um, Nine years after Gary was uh, targeted, um, I um, came home from work one day, and uh, my wife Linda was meeting me at the door, and, and she had a serious look on her face, and said, David, I think we need to talk. And I assumed, okay, did I do something wrong? You know, I could read the signs, kind of. And she sat me down, and then she put her hand on my knee and, and said, David, I'm, I'm really 
I, I hope, please, just bear with me. Do you think there's any chance that your brother might be this Unabomber that everybody's talking about? And, of course, my first reaction was, why would you even think such a thing? And she pointed out that a a manifesto of some sort, uh, a philosophical paper had been sent to the New York Times and the Washington Post. It hadn't yet been made public, but uh, there had been snatches in the paper that it was an anti-technology manifesto, and she knew that my brother was very anti-technology. She knew that he was rather strange, that he'd written very angry letters to the family, blaming them for his unhappiness, and that um, we had actually taken some of those letters to a psychiatrist who said he couldn't make a diagnosis except he suspected schizophrenia. Um, But I said, you know, Ted has never been violent. You know, he doesn't, he's not capable of this. Well, a few weeks later, the manifesto was published. A part of it was online. Linda encouraged me to sit down and read it, and I thought for sure I was going to turn to her and say, I know my brother, I know how he thinks, I know how he writes, this is not him. And instead, as she described it, my jaw kind of dropped. I would say I was still pretty much in denial. I said there was only a very slim chance, but maybe there was a chance, and I agreed that we would investigate further. Over the years, I'd saved about 100 letters from my brother, and some of those letters touched on this theme of Technology. So for the next month or so, we sat side by side after work every day comparing those letters to the um, manifesto, the published manifesto. By, by now, we had the full 78-page document. And, you know, it's, it was like a roller coaster. One night I'd think, no, it can't be him. And then I'd, am I in denial? And then the next day I'd say, how could it not be him? And, and I'd think, am I projecting all of this? Um, But finally, one morning, I remember woke woke up almost like it was from a nightmare, and I went, it's not a nightmare. I went to the breakfast table where Linda was sitting, and I said, you know, hon, I think think it might be a 50-50 chance that Ted wrote this. In other words, that he had murdered three people and injured dozens more. Um, So we're faced with this dilemma. I mean, what do we do? This is somebody I love. Um... But if we do nothing and he strikes again, we'll go through the rest of our lives knowing that an innocent person had died because we had failed to act. We'd have blood on our hands. But the other side of this was the realization, hey, if I turn him in, he's murdered three people. He's, if, if it's him, and he's, um, what if they execute my brother? I'll have my brother's blood on my hands. Um, we really knew we couldn't control the outcome of a trial, but there was one thing we could control. If it was Ted, if it was my brother, we could stop the violence. And we, after deep discussions, we felt it was our moral responsibility to go to the FBI and tell them what we suspected. Um, eventually, I, uh, you know, we met with the FBI a few times, and at one point they said, uh, David, um, we really need to speak with your mother. Do you think you could maybe approach her, tell her what's going on, that we're investigating your brother? And I knew how much my mother had worried about my brother. I knew how much she loved him. I didn't know if she could still love me if she'd learned what I'd done, that I'd actually 
turned my brother into law enforcement. Um, I remember going to the door of her apartment. She lived just a few miles from us, uh, upstate New York. And, uh, you know, I, w- I walk in the door. She sees something's wrong. She says, what is it? What is it? Mom, sit down. And here I'm pacing the floor back and forth. But anyway, I finally, I say, Mom, you've heard of the Unabomber, this, this, this. Uh, I really think there's a chance my brother might be the Unabomber. She's looking at me saying nothing. And I said, Mom, I've gone to the FBI. I've shared these suspicions, and they're currently investigating. Um, this is my, my mother passed away a few years ago, but this is my defining memory of her. She got up from the chair where she was sitting. She walked up to me. She put her arms up around my neck, pulled me down. She was only like less than five feet tall, and... and she kissed me on the cheek like a blessing and said, David, I can't imagine what you've been struggling with. And from that point, we, we knew that we were in this together as a family, myself, my wife, Linda, and my mother, Wanda. Um, Ted was arrested a few weeks later, and at that point, um, I guess there had been some kind of leak within the FBI. They, it was publicly released that he'd been, quote, turned in by his own brother, the media kind of surrounded our house. I remember there was a cameraman. I, I didn't have words for what we were feeling. We were trauma. So it was Linda, my mom, and me. And here we are. And Linda's putting blankets over the windows because we feel so isolated. Um, I didn't know if people could ever understand what kind of a family could produce someone as violent as the Unabomber or... Um, what kind of a brother would turn in his own brother? Um, I think there was a late-night comedian who, who actually said, oh, imagine one family. you got the Unabomber and the Unisnitch. I thought, wow, that was cruel. you know. Anyway, so we felt so isolated, like we were exiled from the world as we knew it. Years later, I got to meet uh, David's mom and... I'm pretty much an MBIA-style guy. I'm not tall compared to how short she was. She's a very short woman. So, uh, wonderful person, though. Um, this part, I'm going to choose to read. I, I normally don't, but I just wanted to make it as poignant as I could um, when it comes to this topic of forgiveness. It's a, it's a big one, right? Um, so, there are no cookie-cutter recipes for the forgiveness journey. We can observe examples of people who successfully move past an offender or something egregious, but we can never truly understand the nuances and struggles of their journey. What I, what I share with you today, just a minute. Sometimes you don't speak for a while, emotion catches up, does it all, eh, every once in a while. Um, what I share with you today is not prescriptive. It's simply an overview of things I considered and decisions I made. The ideas, choices, and actions associated with forgiveness can be complicated and challenging. Even something as simple as an inappropriate remark can cause each of us to react harshly, put up barriers, and develop different opinions about a person who has offended us. But what if an event or action in question is so large or egregious that it begs the question, can it or should it ever be forgiven? In my case, a man spent hundreds, if not thousands, of hours building an explosive device and planning an attack with the sole intent of killing me. His actions caused permanent physical injuries, impacted my mental and emotional well-being. 
challenged my sense of security, and inflicted pain that will last a lifetime. To further complicate things, this man was a ghost, and there was a very real possibility that I may never know his identity. For years, I would wake up in the morning, and my first thoughts and feelings were, how much pain am I in? Has anxiety kicked in yet? Who is this person, and are they coming back? I continually struggled with the following question, what am I going to do with all this? I'd get my answer about six years later. I had finished an interview with a segment um, with Tom Brokaw, which it never aired. Michael Jordan elected to retire that day so you could choose Michael Jordan, Gary Wright. I mean, what's it going to be, right? <laughs> so it, it, it never really happened, but um, it, was, it was really interesting. I was driving down the road, and then I heard that booming voice again. It was, took, me, took me by surprise, and it basically said, in order to move on, you have to forgive. Let yourself fall into the hands of God. My first thought was, you've got to be kidding me. Just let go and free fall? It kind of felt like I would be jumping out of, the pl- out of a plane without a parachute. This thought really impacted me, so I pulled over to the side of the road to absorb what I had just heard or interpreted, and I became flooded with emotion and confusion. The thought of forgiving the man responsible for my injuries was a continual debate in my mind that lasted for months. I wasn't about to accept anything that had happened to me, and at that time there was no way I would tell that person I was okay with what they'd done. I also considered and weighed what other people might think and how it could possibly change their opinion of me. I believe for many people, this is one of the key barriers preventing or delaying forgiveness. I continued my journey of discovery and read the thoughts of academics and medical professionals, civic and spiritual leaders, and came upon a few quotes that I found empowering. The first was, the weak can never forgive, forgiveness is the attitude of the strong, from Gandhi. I wanted to feel strong. Forgiveness is not an occasional act. It's a personal, it's a permanent attitude by Martin Luther King. I realized it was going to be a lifelong thing. And then, to be wronged is, pardon me, to be wronged is nothing unless you continue to remember it by Confucius. So through the ages, there were so many different examples of which I'm, I'm putting my head around at this time. Um, and I, I just took the time. So one day, I, I ride race bicycles. I was out riding my bike, and it's a place where my mind settles down and my thoughts become clear. And it kind of dawned on me that perhaps I needed a different definition for what forgiveness meant. One that was personal to me, one that I could honor and embrace. And it took some time, but I came up with the following definition. I love myself enough that I won't let others see me as angry or less than who I am or what I might become. (laughs) I felt it honored me at my values, and and it was who I was at my very core. And when I started to think about it later, it's more (laughs) appropriate today, it could even be a tattoo. So no, I don't have ink on me, but it could be a phrase. And um, so... The choice to forgive is very personal, one that can be complicated, thorny, and messy. People around you will have opinions about your decision and will probably be happy to share them with you, good or bad. We all face the challenge of finding ways in which to forgive another person, whether it's a family member or friend, which I think just might be the most difficult, um, a colleague, or in some cases a total stranger. My advice is to be patient with yourself, find your own definition of forgiveness, one that respects and honors who you are, 
and realize you are so much stronger than you think. After all, isn't it you that has to live with the decision to forgive or not? Um, my worry about there being future victims um, sort of shifted after Ted's arrest. It was clear that he was the person responsible. Indeed, it was very necessary that we turned him in under, in his small cabin, they found another live bomb ready to be mailed to somebody. So, um, But I was worried that Ted would be a prime candidate for the death penalty. Um, it was my biggest fear. Time went. We, we actually went to the government a couple of times, met with the committee at the federal level that makes the decision about whether to pursue death or life imprisonment. We presented our case. We talked about his mental illness. We talked about, you know, some mercy for the family, if not for the perpetrator of such a crime. Um, Anyway, at one point, the attorney general uh, announced that she was going to seek the death penalty for Ted Kaczynski. And I felt, I felt like a victim at that point. I mean, first of all, they were supposed to keep this secret who had, you know, turned him in. And secondly, I really thought that they would take the death penalty off the table for the reasons I just cited. Um, Linda heard this so many times, and she said, David, you know, this whole thing isn't just about you. You might feel like a victim here, but there are real victims out there, people who've lost their loved ones, their family. And I was like, no, you don't understand. You know, it's, it's not just loss and grief, it's guilt, and uh, my victimization is... And she said, David, you're being too self-involved here. You need to understand a bigger picture. Um, My wife and I practice Buddhism, and um, uh, we went to our shrine room uh, in a little room in the morning, and there was something different on the shrine. There were now, Linda had put three candles on the shrine, and I didn't have to ask her what those candles represented. They represented the three lives that my brother had extinguished. Um, And we meditated every day for months and months and years, it turned out, with those three candles there. And over the time, it evolved that we should find some way of reaching out to the victims, apologizing to the victims, seeing if they needed or wanted anything from us, a conversation, and, and to be honest with you, there was something I wanted from them, too, the fact, the, just the feeling that we wouldn't forever be split apart and divided, that my world wouldn't be blown apart by my brother's bombs, that um, we were human with human needs and human commonalities and that we could empathize with one another. Um, so we did, took a long time and a lot of dialogue, but Linda and I, drafted a letter. We sent it, I think we had 13 or 14 addresses. We never were able to find Gary's address, oddly enough. And and I was kind of disappointed. We got two replies and they were kind of like, okay, thank you for writing, but we don't really want to meet or talk with you. Um, anyway, it it felt like we were still in a world apart. And then one of Linda's close friends who had actually helped us in the investigation of Ted, she worked, Susan Swanson worked as a private investigator, uh, had seen Gary on TV. 
And she said, you know, David, I think you could call him. He doesn't sound like he's that angry. He's got a different frame of mind. And so I thought about it, meditated on it for a couple of months, and then I finally said, I'm going to try it. My need was great to feel that I wasn't divided from all the people who had been harmed. And um, I remember calling Gary's house, and uh, I was sort of prepared for what I was going to say, and there was an answering machine that came on and said, you've reached the right house at the wrong time. And I didn't know quite what to, <laughs> to say. I, you know, I said, I'm David Kaczynski. I think you know who I am. And I'll, I'll try calling back later. Next time I called back, Gary's daughter picked up the phone and she said, Dad, there's somebody on the phone for you. And I talked to Gary, and wow, it was like, it was amazing. It, it was, it was, I mean, he empathized immediately. He says, I hope your brother doesn't get executed. And I, I, David, you have nothing to apologize for. You did the right thing. I really, really love you for what you did in protecting other people. And then he said something amazing. He said, you know, I know you have some family members, some people you're close to, but maybe if you need to talk to somebody, someone sort of outside that family loop, call me anytime, day or night, you could call me. And it was like, oh my gosh, it was like a bridge across this abyss between myself and all the families that had been harmed. Uh, It was like a sign of hope that there is at least a possibility that we can heal the things that divide us, um, that our, our emotional wounds, um, we can heal, help each other to heal. And I, Gary has meant the world to me. He has brought me that sense of hope, that sense of belief that um, it's not the divisions between us that, that matter so much, but that there is a real possibility There's a real possibility for hope and for healing and for love to triumph. Yeah, I guess as we come to wrap this up a little bit, uh, the trial came, and ultimately I got to tell Ted to his face. I forgive you. Um, Really interesting moment in that when he was, I was at the sentencing hearing a lot of, you can imagine how, pressure packed it was very small room but lots of emotion you know everywhere around you but when I told him that it was he'd been writing on a notepad never seen him he dropped his pencil and it was like the perfect transfer it was like you own it now I I don't have to carry it it was kind of surreal in some ways um, in the in this sea of this courtroom, there's victims, family members, and things on the right side, as I'm looking at you. On the left side is the media and David and his attorney. That's it. So I, I walk off the stage. I give David a wink. And as we walk out afterwards, I look down the path, and he's on a podium, just the way that I'd seen him a few times on the on the television, just interview after interview. Sometimes you 
you wonder about friends. And while we were down there, I mean, to me, friendship's defined by what people do. It's quality. It's, you know, who they are as people. And I was having lunch after this has gone on, and my phone starts ringing. And I look down, and it's a 916 area code, California area code. I think, uh, FBI sold my number again or something. Somebody wants to talk. And I pick it up, and it was actually David. And he, he said, well... Where are you? I said, I'm in Old Town, Sacramento. And I said, where are you? He said, the Holiday Inn. I said, right in front of me. He said, well, do you want to come up and talk? So we did. Unlikely? Yeah, probably. A couple of guys, normal guys, different backgrounds. But uh, choice to forgive, it's a big one. Like I said, but you're strong. I mean, it's uh, it's something that it frees your spirit. Everything's lighter. You don't have to think about it anymore. Even if they don't want to be forgiven. In my case, there was no way of ever knowing. I've never spoken to Ted. But I did it anyway. And I think in the end, that's how I got to be whole again. So, you know, it's just something to consider. There's so many stories out there in the world. And all we can do is just take in information, right? And do what we do with it. But scary. I remember a book that I read when I was about 20 years old that was just very powerful for me. I've read it many times over again. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, um, who was a concentration camp survivor and a, a psychiatrist who wrote about our ability to take even the worst possible circumstances, and of course I wouldn't compare mine at all in any way to what his were during the years that he was in the concentration camp and lost his wife. um, But but his fundamental message was we can always transform. We could take any situation, no matter how painful, how disabling it may be, and create meaning out of it. And I believe that is what has guided Gary and me since then. At least Gary came to New York. I I was working. I accepted a job as director of New Yorkers against the death penalty. And we we worked together, and Gary came, and another um, high-profile victim, Bud Welch, who lost his daughter in the Oklahoma City bombing, joined us. Um, Bill Babbitt... uh, who had turned in his veteran brother here in California, um, a man who had served in Vietnam, had a piece of shrapnel in his head, had beaten an elderly woman to death, um, who had been sentenced to death by an all-white jury, black man. Um, so we're pointing out all kinds of reasons, but, but, but fundamentally our message was, um, you know, violence, whether it's, got the imprimatur of justice on it or not. Violence cannot change the world for the better. Um, It may look powerful because you can even kill people. You could change their lives. You could do all kinds of things with violence that look powerful, but it's not really powerful. What's powerful, more subtle, maybe long-lasting, is love. That is the power that um, Gary 
helped me, my wife helped me, all the people sort of involved in, in sort of so constructive ways, even the attorney who helped us save Ted's life, ultimately. Um, I'm now struggling with some grief. He, he, he died apparently by suicide in prison this summer, in federal prison. He had stage four cancer. Um, he never spoke to me again, kept that door closed. Um, it's not the same maybe, but there's, I believe, in spiritual brotherhood too. And Gary is my brother. <laughs> yeah, in we spirit. definitely have that. In spirit. <laughs> um, so. so, anyway. Well, thank you for, like I said, allowing us to be here today. It's such a special day. And um, for indulging us, I know it's a long day for all of you. But hopefully there's a piece in there somewhere. I always have said... I'll speak as long as it does something for somebody. And so my dad used to say, when you die, they're going to have to take a rock and kill your mouth. But that's just me, right? So anyway, but thank you. Really very, very much appreciated.